Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today we've got a bit of a treat. We're listening to Chris Gray, who's one of our trainees here in Manchester, who's going to take us through the management of GI emergencies and in particular the management of the patient who's got severe gastrointestinal bleeding. Now, if, like me, you've been around this job for a while, you'll know that these can be some of the most challenging cases that we see. There's airway problems, there's circulation problems, there's respiratory problems, there's often underlying disease such as coagulopathy, and it can be really, really tough to manage these patients well. So we were really pleased that Chris put this talk together. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you come and listen to some more of these talks and to check out the other talks on the website. I'll put the links on the blog. Red standby. 33-year-old male, vomiting blood, blood pressure 70 systolic, six minutes. How does that make you feel? Does it scare you? It scares me. We don't see these patients very often. Around 60,000 patients are admitted each year in the UK as a result of upper gastrointestinal bleeding. For every 350 patients that walk through our doors of the emergency department of any cause, that's one GI bleed admission. In Verchester, that's one patient a day. And that doesn't account for the people that we discharge. We know the majority of bleeds are caused by peptic ulcer disease, and whilst variceal bleeds can be scary and deadly if not controlled quickly, they only make up around 5 to 10%. Even with an alcohol history worse than yours or mine, unless your patient has known varices or confirmed alcoholic liver disease, it's more likely to be an ulcer. It's a life-threatening condition, and with a mortality of 10%, which has remained static for the last 50 years, despite advances in medical management, early intervention and recognition could make a huge difference. The principles of management are well known. We resuscitate those patients that need it, attempting to create some semblance of hemodynamic stability through volume replacement and reversal of coagulopathy. History, examination and blood tests allow us to risk assess our patients using tools such as the Glasgow Blatchford score, as well as our own clinical acumen or gestalt. Finally, we refer on, whether back to their GP to preside over an outpatient endoscopy or on to our medical colleagues for more urgent investigations. But we're not here to talk about those low or medium risk patients. You know, the ones we send home or just admit under the medics for their routine endoscopies. What do we do for those patients for whom you don't need the Glasgow Blatchford score to tell you that they're high risk? The ones where you struggle to get past even the first R. The ones that scare us. These patients are severely in trouble. They're hemodynamically unstable. They're bleeding. You can't control that alone. You shouldn't need to control that alone. They're in shock. They're cold. If they were on their way to a major trauma centre, they'd be greeted by a major trauma team a team leader with a group of 10 to 20 people who are there just focused on one thing, them. But they haven't been hit by a car and they're not on their way to a major trauma centre. Your patient's cold, they're shocked, they're hemodynamically unstable. 
don't they deserve their own major trauma team? They're on their way to your emergency department in the back of an ambulance, shocked. We shouldn't deal with this alone, but we often try to. Like the major trauma patient being hit by a car, bleeding, shouldn't your patient be greeted by a team too? But who would you have on your team? And what skills can they bring to the emergency department to help us with the resuscitation of our sick patient? Now, I'm going to get a lot of flack for standing here at what's largely an emergency medicine and critical care conference and mentioning anaesthetics first. <laughs> Thank you, that one anaesthetist that's here. But hear me out. As emergency physicians, we like to maintain our airway competencies. And certainly here in Verchester, a lot of intubation and airway management is done in-house. But at this resuscitation, what we really need is a senior anaesthetist or two, together with an experienced ODP, ready to manage what is undoubtedly going to be a difficult intubation if it's needed. Talking of seniority, it's at this point we want our boss to be in the hospital too. At 3am in the morning, this is the time the boss needs to come in. And bosses out there, consultants, you know who you are. This is the patient we need you to come in for. Because as Jeff Healy... of Sydney Hems says, if you're not going to come in for the sickest patient in the hospital, who are you going to come in for? Now intubating these patients isn't always great and we know that they are more likely to suffer cardiopulmonary complications as a result of being intubated. And that makes sense though, we're, we're only going to be intubating the sickest patients. But it's something to think about. There are times where intubation is needed though, and those are patients who are dropping their conscious level, or those patients who need intubation for further tests, such as endoscopy. If this happens, you need to be prepared. Get lines in and start vasopressors early. The patient's going to crash. Do something about it before they do. Position the patient head up, but make sure you've got a bed that tilts head down in case they start vomiting. Use video laryngoscopy. It enables your assistants to see exactly what you're doing and preempt any problems you might have. But use a device like the CMAC or McGrath that also allows you to convert to direct laryngoscopy if the camera gets obscured by vomit. Suction, suction, suction. You're going to need just one assistant, at least one assistant, whose pure focus is on clearing that airway and keeping it clear of vomit. One great approach to this is with Jim DeCanto's salad method. And James, who sat over here, is lucky enough to have bought um, all of Jim's kit with him uh, to St Emelin's Live. And during the marketplace at lunchtime in the next session, there'll be lots of opportunity to sim that and demo and practice as well. So please make sure you get and have a look at that with Jim, James. Now, as a budding critical care doctor and emergency physician, I'd be keen to get intensive care down early for this patient. Realistically, once they've had whatever intervention they're going to have, they're either going to end up in critical care or the mortuary. So it makes sense to get them down early. They can also help you with other tasks that need doing, like liaising with other colleagues over the phone, leaving you free to run the resuscitation. Now, I love lines as much as the next person, particularly of the arterial variety. And as a lot of people have already alluded to, it's key to get those in early in your resuscitation efforts. They enable an up-to-date second-by-second reading of the blood pressure, as well as allowing you to take any blood tests and gases that your heart could desire. 
You don't even need to stab your patient lots of times to do it either. So it's important to get these in early. And they're easy to do and a skill I feel all emergency physicians should be able to accomplish, as well as setting up our own transducer sets. And on that subject, it's maybe worth thinking about in your own department, having a transducer set set up and ready to go at the start of your shift, because you never know when you might want to put an arterial line in in a hurry, and normally the set is the rate-limiting step. Something to think about. Central lines are a bit more difficult in the awake vomiting patient. All the bits and pieces that you need to try and access are usually moving whenever the patient starts to vomit, so it can be difficult to get one in. But at the very least, you need two good large bore IV access. And if you're struggling with large bore ones, get smaller access in, using an ultrasound if necessary. And you can upgrade those, if you have the kit, to a rapid infusion catheter. If you don't have rapid infusion catheters or you don't know what they are, have a look at it and see why you don't have them in your own department. They're really, really useful bits of kit. If you're really struggling even further, don't forget about the interosseous route. All the drugs and products you might want to give can be given interosseously. So if it's all going wrong, get some IO access. Now at this point, we're going to need to talk about nurses. We're going to want a few of those in our team. Best. <laughs> Shout out to Ashley, got to suck up to the nurses, lesson for life. Um, uh, so, <laughs> so nurses are going to want a few of those. Aside from airway management skills, intravenous access skills, liaising with the family, or even running the resus, there's so many skills that our emergency department nurses can bring to our team. One crucial one being the drawing up and administering any drugs that we might want to give. But which ones can we give? Which ones are any good? We know that tranexamic acid improves mortality in trauma patients. Hands up who would give it in a patient with severe GI bleeding? Pretty much everyone. There's not very good evidence for or against it at the moment, but the HALT-IT trial is going on at the moment, and despite reaching their target of 8,000 patients last year, they've actually extended recruitment, aiming to recruit 12,000 patients and hoping to finish in the middle of next year. And fingers crossed they won't keep extending it and we'll actually get some data and results to work out whether this is worth it or not. For those patients with variceal bleeds, we have a few more options. Turlipressin has been shown to reduce mortality in variceal bleeds by a third, so you should get that in early if you're considering variceal bleeds. And 20% of cirrhotic patients will develop an infection within the first 48 hours. So it's important to cover them with antibiotics like ciprofloxacin or keftriaxone, which have good evidence base. But of course, have a chat with your microbiologists and see what they prefer. <coughs> now, there is one drug type that I haven't mentioned so far, and that's proton pump inhibitors. <coughs> now, we all know, and we've probably had many conversations over the phone with some of our colleagues to the same extent, that there's no evidence for proton pump inhibitors before endoscopy in GI bleeding. It doesn't improve outcomes at all. So let's just leave that in the corner where it needs to be. I've done well so far to not mention blood transfusion. And that's in part due to the Goldilocks nature of giving blood. Trying to neither over nor under transfuse your patient. Instead giving them just the right amount of blood and blood products to enable them to fulfil a long and happy life. We know that bleeding patients are bad. We also know that the body can cope with blood loss up to a point. And we know that transfusion also comes with risks. So how do we decide what to give our patients? <coughs> Evidence shows that a restrictive transfusion strategy is best and improves outcomes. And the guidance is that we should restrict blood transfusion to patients with a haemoglobin of less than 70. 
or less than 100 in patients where we think they have variceal bleeds. With our arterial lines in, we can now get rapid, quick haemoglobin assessments using our blood gas machines. But it's important to be aware that those haemoglobins are accurate if the patient has stopped bleeding, but in patients with ongoing bleeding, they become less so. We need to combine those tests with our clinical picture in order to decide exactly what we want to give our patient. There are other blood products as well, and NICE guidelines recommend that they're only given in patients who have ongoing bleeding. If their platelets are less than 50, we can give platelets. Those with INR, PT or APTTs more than a one and a half times the normal range can be given fresh frozen plasma. And patients who've already received fresh frozen plasma but still have a fibrinogen of less than 1.5 should receive cryoprecipitate. Don't forget to reverse patients who are on warfarin using PCC, prothrombin complex concentrate. And for those patients who are on the newer oral anticoagulant drugs, it's important to discuss with haematology early, as they may be able to provide some strategy to reverse the anticoagulation. If your department has thromboelastography, anyone? You've got TEG or Rotem in your departments? Someone's not sure if they do. Um, but if you have TEG or Rotem in your departments, it can be used to try and help guide what clotting products you give, though this isn't actually evidence-based at the moment. Here in Verchester, anecdotally, we've had good success with it. Endoscopy is where you want your patient to go. It's the definitive treatment. It's all very well pouring blood and drugs in the top end, but unless someone puts a plug in, what's the point? Depending on where you work, will alter who does the endoscopy though. In some places it's the general surgeons, in other it's the gastroenterologists, some places it's both. You need to know who runs your service, so you know who you're going to call at 3am when that patient turns up bleeding. NICE guidelines recommend that endoscopy should be available immediately after the patient is stable enough after resuscitation to go for endoscopy. So make sure that team is in the hospital, at the bedside, ready to go. On the topic of shoving stuff down people's throats, no self-respecting talk on upper GI bleeds will be complete without a little mention for the Sengstake and Blakemore or Minnesota tubes. They're devices used in patients with variceal bleeding as a balloon tamponade, stopping Increase. that bleeding, or trying to at least, Not. until definitive Wait. intervention can happen. There's some great resources out there online, particularly on MCRIT from Scott Weingart, and also Jess Mason from MRAP has put together a fantastic video about how to insert a Sengstaken tube, which I'll be tweeting out around about in about 10 minutes. And so you can, should check that out as well. For those simulation aficionados out there, upper GI bleeding patients are a great one to simulate, and it's important to get those tubes down and practice having looked at Jess's video so that the next time you need to insert one in a real patient, it won't be your first time. Of course, endoscopy can fail, and there are certain risk factors that lead to this. Those patients who present hemodynamically unstable, with a blood pressure of less, uh, with a hemoglobin of less than 100, or those needing a blood transfusion of more than six units are more likely to fail endoscopy. Luckily, there is another option. Interventional radiology might be an up-and-coming field, and there may not be many of them out there. But some of the stuff they can do is pure voodoo. Our IR colleagues can do anything from embolising blood vessels with coils or glue 
to doing a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, and try saying that later after some fomaoki, which is a procedure to try and shunt some of the blood flow and pressure away from the portal and variceal circulation back into the systemic circulation, reducing that pressure, reducing that bleeding, and trying to stabilise the patient. It's only a temporary procedure, though. Depending on where you work, you may have a 24-hour on-call IR service, or you might not have one at all. So it's important to check with your radiologist what they can offer and what they feel they might be able to offer to a patient with upper GI bleeding on your pathway in your team. As if there's any delay to endoscopy for whatever reason, IR might be able to offer a solution. Now, I've spoken a lot about who you might want on your team and why, but we need to focus on you now. What skills have you got to bring to the resuscitation of our patient with a severe upper GI bleed? Well, if we're going to take a trauma team approach to this patient, then we need a team leader. And this leader doesn't have to be a doctor, just someone with the leadership and communication skills necessary to coordinate this group of people to lead the resuscitation in what is the sickest patient in the hospital. And you'll also have knowledge to do just that, which you can impart on other people during that resuscitation. You'll know how to optimise the airway for intubation. You'll know what lines you need to insert and when. You'll be able to make decisions about what drugs and blood products you're going to give to your patient, based not only on the clinical picture in front of you, but also the evidence base behind. You'll be forward planning deciding where this patient's going to end up. Having activated your major upper GI bleeding pathway. And maybe your department doesn't have endoscopy and you need to get this patient to a different hospital. You'll have thought of that before they arrive. And you'll know if interventional radiology can act as a backup in case endoscopy is delayed. Finally, you'll be able to insert a Seng Steak and Blakemore tube, having watched Jess's videos 20 times and simmed it a few times as well. We shouldn't be doing this alone. So where do we go from here? Like the major trauma patient, doesn't your bleeding patient, albeit bleeding on the inside, deserve a similar approach? This requires buy-in from all necessary specialties and is so important to think about establishing in your departments. When you get back to work, have a look at your GI bleeding pathway. Do you have one? Do you know where it is? Do you know who to phone to activate it? How can you make it better? Think. If this patient was about to arrive in your emergency department, would you be able to offer them the best possible treatment first time? Red standby. 33-year-old, vomiting blood, blood pressure 70 systolic, six minutes. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. 
but the block and the podcast have grown and now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive so if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount then just whiz onto the blog look on there and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St Emlyn's free open access medical education thank you for your time 